Hey there, you're listening to the inaugural episode of the Water and Music Podcast. For those of you hearing me for the first time, my name is Sherry Hu, and I'm a freelance music and tech journalist based out of Brooklyn, New York. This podcast is meant to be an audio companion to my email newsletter of the same name, Water and Music, and I'll be devoting each episode to diving into the fine print behind a different big idea in music and technology. So that can include everything from the major streaming services like Spotify and Apple Music, to cutting-edge tech like VR and AR and smart speakers, to the way that artists think about and use technology to grow and sustain their careers. You'll hear about all of that down the line. I also just really want to highlight a ton of really smart and forward-thinking people working in the music industry and discuss and debate some of the ideas they might have that might be unconventional or going against the grain. Like what I try to do in my own writing and in my newsletter, I definitely want you to walk away from each episode thinking a little bit more deeply and maybe challenging your own assumptions about how this industry works. This podcast is also completely ad-free and supported entirely by members of my Patreon page, which as of recording this is almost at $900 a month. That is so crazy and beyond my wildest expectations, and I can't thank everyone enough who's supported so far, whether you've given just $1 per month or $40 per month. Every gesture of every size counts, and yeah, I really can't express my appreciation enough. If you want to support this podcast, get exclusive behind-the-scenes access to the stories I'm working on, read some Patreon-exclusive essays about music and tech, and or even join monthly video hangouts with me, you can go to patreon.com slash sherryhu and browse the various tiers that are available. Today's episode features David Turner is one of the few other writers I know who's covering streaming and music tech with such great depth and with a really analytical tone. He spent the last several years as both a full-time and freelance writer for several publications, including, but not limited to, Pitchfork, MTV News, Rolling Stone, and the Bandcamp Daily. And he also runs a fantastic weekly newsletter with an accompanying Patreon page as well about music streaming and the music industry called Penny Fractions. David recently wrote an issue for his Penny Fractions newsletter about how the rollout for Ariana Grande's Thank You Next and the general marketing strategy around Ariana as a pop star and as a personality presents a potential new model for pop music in terms of how artists and fans engage with each other and how artists can use technologies and strategies that aren't even necessarily new and and date all the way back to the 80s or the 90s to still tell their own stories in a new and innovative way. And I think the most important takeaway from this episode, if you don't remember anything else, is just debunking the myth that pop music is quote-unquote lagging behind in the streaming era. And we spent a lot of time in this episode unpacking the weight, or lack thereof, that streaming should have in measuring an artist's success today. So I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. All right. I'm here with David Turner. David, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So before we get started talking about all things Ariana Grande, thank you, next, etc., I thought it would be really useful to just go through all of the records that Ariana has broken with um, her last two albums that were released over the last year. So as of February 21st, she was the first act to top the Billboard Hot 100, Billboard 200, and Billboard Artists 100 simultaneously, and the last artist to do that was Drake the previous summer. She's also the first artist to occupy the number one, number two, and number three position simultaneously on the Billboard Hot 100 songs chart, and the last artist group that did that was the Beatles all the way back in 1964, and it was Seven Rings, Break Up With Your Girlfriend on Board, and Thank You Next that held those positions, respectively. And this is super interesting. Ariana Grande is also now the most subscribed uh, female artist on YouTube. And the two artists who she surpassed are Taylor Swift and Katy Perry, who were also these two really big, are still these two really big icons of pop music. But I think there are just so many stories to unpack in all these numbers. But one of them is what is a new model for pop music? There's been a lot of stuff written about how artists like Taylor Swift and Katy Perry, who are very traditional pop artists in terms of their marketing and release strategy, are kind of facing an identity crisis as 
uh, as hip hop and R&B and similar genres are becoming more and more influential, especially also as international genres are coming in. So yeah, I, I guess first off, I would love to get your take because you've written in your newsletter about the extent to which Thank You Next and the, the whole release strategy around these last two albums is the next model for pop music. And I'm wondering if you could break down like what you think is new about this and what you think maybe is not so new about this. I think there's a debate about to what extent what Ariana and her team are doing is truly innovative versus just expanding on what a lot of people have done before. Absolutely, absolutely. So where I want to start is that the crux of my newsletter that I wrote at the end of 2018 was sort of focused on the premiere of the Thank You Next music video that happened via YouTube premiere, which is YouTube's still relatively new sort of um, not program, but a sort of like, me- I guess, sort of more mechanism to have it. So if you go to the YouTube landing page, you can, they can essentially have a landing page for when a video premieres. So for Thank You Next, they were able to get hundreds of thousands of people to watch the video premiere at the same time where you were able to leave comments and sort of inter- being able to interact with fans while who are also anticipating the video's launch. And this to me just felt like one of the most exciting moments of pop music of 2018. And I think the reason it felt so exciting was because it sort of to me reclaimed a bit of what I sort of missed about being slightly younger in my like in the like early 2000s was when music videos would premiere, this is a thing that I feel like is kind of a little bit lost because it wasn't, I, maybe, it was, maybe it was a little waning at this point even then, was when music video would premiere on either VH1 or MTV and you had to set a time, like, set a, set a solid time to be like, hey, a new Green Day video is going to drop at this exact moment. You have to get ready to watch it. And the Ariana Grande mm-hmm. update was doing the same thing, but putting it online and allowing it so all of her fans could interact with each other at this exact moment. And I thought that was like a really, really interesting, uh, like sort of an interesting play, because not only is it something that harkens back to that old day of when people would sort of be, would have appointment viewing for our music videos, but it also sort of correlates to what is sort of going on in broader other and broader cultural trends of Twitch streaming, where people are just watching people play video games, do IRL things, or just sort of maybe even playing like board game and having like fun, like comments that are happening on the side of, on the side of that. It's sort of to be brought together these sort of two different like one thing from the past or one thing that's incredibly modern and putting in this pop context sort of amplified this, amplified this in a really interesting way. And that's something that I found just super, like I, I, I honestly thought it was like, like I thought it was just like super awesome. And I was a thing that as soon as it was happening, I was just like, why hasn't this happened before? Which I will, I want to, I want to like sort of throw this back to you. But one thing I actually did want to mention was that, I honestly forgot this until I just did a quick Google search was that Katy Perry actually did something kind of similar two years ago for her album Witness, where she did a 24 hour like YouTube stream and she had people come to her house. They're all kind of celebrities. And it's weird because in a certain way, that is not too dissimilar to what I actually thought was super great about the Ariana Grande stream and that you're bringing fans together, allowing them to interact and have all this kind of cool stuff happen. But the Katy Perry version of it, I mean, maybe they just said more of where Katy Perry's own brand was at that moment. Felt a bit, a bit, it felt a bit desperate and didn't seem to be. It didn't seem to connect as much as what Ariana did and sort of building up to her album in quite the same way. So I don't know. Maybe we could maybe like dive dive a little more into that. Why like something like the twenty four hour Katy Perry stream seemingly didn't have quite the impact of sort of the video premiere that Ariana Grande did. Yeah, that's a really good question. And yeah, you know, to your point about how this is really similar to. Uh, like music video premieres on like VH1, MTV, other similar channels. It's kind of like the new prime time to me in a way, except that like artists choose their own schedule. And I guess artists are the channel and like, yet yeah, they decide what time people should be tuning in for a premiere of a certain video. So just, I guess the locus of control has changed. And I actually had no idea about that Katy Perry example. I think part of it is specific to Ariana's specific campaign now and that she well one the premiere of this video only lasted as long as a video like it wasn't 24 hours long and to me I feel like that increases the sense of FOMO that Ariana's fans might feel and like oh I have to tune in now and I have to experience this premiere now with all these people around the world because it's never going to happen again whereas the the Katy Perry 24-hour live stream 
it's it's it might not be the perfect analogy but to me it's kind of like like live streaming a really long event where like Coachella for instance like I think it had 40 million viewers over the course of its live stream last year and which is a, a ton of people a ton of people tuning in but it's like not really a shared moment and there isn't like a sense of it being truly like as as finite and limited so I think I think that's part of it but yeah, I also think part of it is just about Ariana's brand generally. Like, I, I actually only started following her on Twitter recently. She is, like, retweeting fans all the time. And, like, her and her brand is all about access. Uh, like, fans getting direct access. And if, you, if you're a proven fan, and if you're sure that you really love Ariana Grande and her music and who she is as a person, and are invested in, in her, she'll invest back and will... Um, keep retweeting you keep responding to you at a cadence that Katy Perry and even like a lot of other artists generally they it's it's really it is really difficult to replicate that pace and Ariana Grande is definitely ahead of other artists I think in that sense um, such that if Ariana Grande is going to premiere a video her fans are like all ready to tune in whereas I feel like as an artist if you don't set that foundation um, and that association already from the very beginning, it might some people might not be motivated to jump on immediately. And not that I think Katy Perry is um, like has some kind of like mystique or is holding anything back. Like I think to an extent she also embraces this strategy, but Ariana kind of multiplies it by ten, um, in my opinion, and just really is like constantly interacting with her fans and wanting to share these these moments with them online, such that something like a YouTube premiere for, for thank you next or for another one of her videos. It's, it just seems like the natural next sequence to me. Absolutely. Yeah. I think one of the things that that, this is something that I feel like I've been increasingly writing about is that some of this is just that artists need to, I mean, I get, I, I always find like, it's kind of like weird conversation to describe the artist man relationship. Cause it's just a very like, odd. Oh, I find it a little odd, but one of the reasons is because like artists need to sort of like guide their fans in a way. It's like, Artists are following their fans and, and following fan demands, but it also sort of, it's sort of a two-way street. It sort of goes both ways where it's like fans want act, usually want access to artists. And if you as an artist are giving them that access consistently, then they'll reward you for it in the sort of the case of that sort of that video premiere. But if you're sort of like a little hit or miss about it, then you sort of get in this weird nebulous sort of zone that I think like Katy Perry sort of falls, fell in. And I think a lot of artists typically fall in where it's sort of like, you may give like VIP access or you may give like a meet and greet or you may do like one off events, but it's not really, I guess, honestly, like you didn't, you didn't have like a solid business strategy behind it. It wasn't like there wasn't really like a bigger yeah. overall goal or campaign with it. It was just sort of like a little bit more one off. And when you do one off things like that, it's a little bit harder to, it's a little bit harder to sort of sustain that and then sort of like see it through in different avenues. And I think that's something that, a lot of artists, I think, right now are still. I think. I mean, I think a lot of artists and a lot of people across the different entertainment spheres are trying to figure out the best way to do that. Because I think you're right that the inverse of that is, if you have a 24 hour stream, you're correct that like it feels less special. It feels less like you have less reason to sort of to dive into it. But the other version of that is like there are Twitch streams that are like 24 hour, like multi day long streams, and just hopping mm -hmm. into those like those kind of chat like those kind of streams do sort of offer that where it is sort of like hey just being able to hop in and hop out is kind of a little bit more worthwhile and so but I, but I also think that also sort of goes back to sort of the different communities and like, I think maybe for the pop fan community at least as it exists right now it more or less wants to sort of be in interaction with their favorite artists but when it comes to like an actual like song or event they want the thing to happen and they don't need it to last the entire day like i don't think i would like need an out like so if drake did something similar i don't think i'd need like 24 hours of drake i think i probably just want like five minutes or a half hour of drake and then the rest of the content can sort of meme itself into the rest like that exists like he can the rest of the content can just be me that limited content can just be memed into forever and that's fine i don't need like the 24 hours of drake because 24 hours is like a lot of content <laughs> right totally and and thinking about the quote-unquote artist fan relationship um one thing that you wrote in your newsletter about 
um, about this topic, about Ariana Grande and Thank You Next that I found super fascinating is that you made, um, or you, you addressed the, t- the assumption that pop music isn't prepared for streaming or like pop music is behind in the streaming era. And I think you said that instead, like the audience is just spread out across a lot of different platforms. In saying that, are you trying to point out that like artists and labels are increasingly pushing fans just to stream music on Spotify, Apple Music and other services and kind of missing the bigger picture of like what it means to be a fan? Like I I was wondering if you could expand more on like why you address that and um, and why you think that might like why you think that might be the case? Absolutely. So the thing that I was sort of trying to get at is that one pop music. I think one of the ways to think about it is that pop music should kind of exist. I mean, should I? Well, I, I should or at least has been has existed in the last, I guess, forty. That's like more since the eighties has existed in the sense of being like broad in that you will hear pop music coming out of a car, you'll hear it out of a store, you'll hear it at the gym, you'll hear it between commercials on morning talk shows. Like, pop music is kind of meant to be everywhere. And if it's Mm -hmm. everywhere, it kind of means on some level you might not stream it as much because you just hear it all the Mm -hmm. time. It's sort of a little bit more, it is a little bit more background music in a way. And it has and exists a little bit more in the background in a way that it's, and that's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to be music that exists. I mean, it's pop and it's popular. It's supposed to reach a mass audience. And as mass audiences, streaming, so like my, so like, so the thought is with streaming, like, let me take a step back. So the comparison between pop music and rap in the streaming era has always been a very odd one to me because the reason is that rap music should, like, in the last decade, has always been extremely online. It has always been through rap mixtapes, through sites like That Pip, Live Mixtapes, My Mixtapes, mm-hmm. um, Spinrilla. Like, they're just been, the rap fan has been pushed towards the internet for the last 10 to 15 years in a way the pop fan has not been. And how traditional pop music consumption has not been either. And so when you do that, you are now training the audience of fans to consume music purely through the internet and and purely through like stream, increasingly through only streaming means. So that makes sense that as the charts and as more of the metrics we're looking at prioritize that, pop gets sort of lost. It doesn't mean that pop is less popular by any means, really. It just means that it isn't doing as well in the current metrics that we are sort of now mostly looking at. Mm. So with pop right now, it's sort of like when you are only like looking at streaming numbers, you're sort of like, oh, you're missing all these other avenues with which pop songs are exist in a way that rap just does not. Like you don't really hear, like, I mean, you don't hear rap songs in the same like catch-all variety that you do here still hear pop contemporary pop songs and that's not like a i really i I honestly don't have a huge like i mean i i I have my own aesthetic preferences and taste but i don't find that to be like a problem that needs to be fixed like there doesn't need to be more rap to be to like to like sort of counterbalance the pop i don't really think that really that line thing doesn't really make a ton of sense to me but i sort of think that like generally that's sort of why that's that's sort of the case and that's why i feel like it's sort of a misreading to see that pop is lagging behind in this area it's not really the sim- a similar thing happened to me 10 years ago around 10 years ago when the when the iTunes when iTunes after iTunes had been around for a while the first genre that did really well on the iTunes chart was rap music bands would just buy singles because fans realized they don't want to buy an entire album they just want to buy a single song mm-hmm. they want to buy the single hit and pop lagged behind that for a while I think one of the first like acts that really i noticed was always doing super well on the itunes charts like there was pop was like rihanna the black eyed peas and then it sort of moved to the likes of Katy perry taylor swift and you started seeing that like oh yeah now these other art now pop is now entering into like the itunes lane that was probably previously dominated by rap and i find that it's a similar trend has now been happening in the street in the streaming era it's just that when you are over indexing for one particular form of measurement then the, all the other ones get sort of forgotten. And when they get forgotten, it's not that any of these genres are less popular, it's just they're not being accounted for quite as well, if that sort of makes sense. Yeah, 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 definitely. Are you saying like there, there are preoccupations with certain metrics that yeah don't take account of the entire picture? In part because the entire picture, I feel like in a lot of cases is, uh, it can be difficult to measure. And this is yeah. like a, yeah, this is a continual challenge for for artists and for labels, it's like, how do you 
measure your your true impact and like how many people are actually talking about you yeah and also I, yeah sorry go ahead oh no i'm saying absolutely yeah no i mean that's sort of the a general issue of artists labeled i mean this is like a general i mean this sort of goes back to like one of the things where i was i was writing this in, in, a, in a in an upcoming newsletter but it's sort of like one of the things when you're operating at this kind of scale is like you're operating a lot more on the like marketing slash marketing side of trying to figure out how many like impressions and things like that you're getting versus like concrete sales or concrete like like fans that are like i guess i want to say like butts and seats or something like that well i mean you're obviously going to care about that when you're on the live tour but like it's a little bit more of that kind of thinking where you're able to go like for an ariana grande when you have millions of fans you're looking at it at a scale that is much different than an artist that only has dozens of fans. Mm -hmm. So like for my own Patreon, like my own Patreon page is like, there's like a couple dozen people. So like, Mm -hmm. I am very, I'll be very attuned to those couple dozen people because that's like how my newsletter makes money. But Mm -hmm. if I had a million people that were interested in my newsletter, I would have a lot more options and I wouldn't be so focused on the single individual anymore. If that makes sense. Yeah. 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 Definitely. And thinking about also like the, yeah, like the race to get the most impressions. And and in many ways it is thinking about how like everything old is new again. It's just like, what is the best way to broadcast to as many people as possible Um, Mm -hmm. and like spread awareness about my music. Uh, So I was reading your newsletter write up about, about this topic. And I actually learned about it from you. You quoted something from a Vulture article about the pump plan. Oh, yes. Which I find not surprising, but still a little funny to me that that's like, like a set plan that now people are using to, uh, to market music. And so for those who, I'll include the article in the notes for this episode, but for those who don't know about it, it's like a really structured marketing plan that these people at a record label called Inze Records set up inspired by Lil Pump. And it includes everything from uh, like manufacturing memes to getting on like short form video platforms like formerly musically now tiktok um to getting promo on sites like world star and and intentionally causing controversy i think like the phrase i used was called like controversy projects (laughs) and (laughs) and it's just to me it seems kind of like a lost cause to try to manufacture those things i mean to an extent everyone is already trying to do this like everyone's trying to manufacture their own memes if you just think beyond music like even netflix is memeing their own shows yeah so like this strategy is is so pervasive now to the point where in my mind like it it might work for impressions like if that's what you're trying to get but the impact seems like kind of small to me i'm just i'm curious as to what you think about something something like the pump plan where virality is is framed as a plan and it like has all these steps that you like need to fill in order to achieve this alleged state of virality. See, this is again like a very I think this is one of those things that where it depends on the artist and also the context of either we're talking about music or something outside of music. Netflix is a really good example of that where they have like where like the bird box thing where like there is like an, where at one point people thought myself included that the, some of the bird box memes were like all like planted and fake. But it actually right. was just that they were real and it was just that they like spread super quickly and they just spread mm-hmm. virally in such a, like, a rapid way that it just seemed like it might have been planted. But the reason why we assume that they're fake is because there are plenty of stories and then you see plants like this that sort of outline the ways to sort of manufacture that kind of like that kind of virality. So I certainly do like see like so I certainly see like what like that that particular issue. But to go back to your actual, like, more, sorry, to go back to more your question, I think of the actual validity of the pump plan or sort of that idea, I think, so, for Lil Pump, I actually thought it was interesting because he just put out a record called, like, the Harvard Dropout, I think, like, like on mm-hmm. this previous Friday, I, from the, from, from once we're recording, and I thought it was funny because I thought, I feel like Lil Pump's, like, actual, like, attention and, and like, how much people cared about him, like, peaked really quickly, because once he mm. sort of did all the controversial things and did got all the people riled up by just being obnoxious, it sort of was like, what else is there here? Like, what is the substance to this? And it doesn't seem like there's a lot there. Where if you compare that to Ariana Grande, I, the note I made in the Thank You Next video, which is as soon as that video dropped, 
I saw memes happening like immediately. And I don't know if those were like planted memes or just fan memes, but it was like really clear that there was like clearly memeable content ready to go, which is something that I know has been in like the K-pop world, something that it has been happening where like videos are made with the explicit idea that they will be made in, in, into, into various video clips and memes. So it's sort of like you can sort of see that working that way. But I think what I but what I wanted to highlight, what the, the difference between the two is that Ariana Grande like the memes of Ariana Grande and sort of the in sort of the the in the bigger sort of I guess sort of impression that she's going to get through that is building towards something and it's only being used to sort of further mm. her brand because it makes when you see Ariana Grande memes it brings you closer to Ariana Grande it makes you feel closer to Ariana Grande it makes you feel like she when like so yeah it was like like the um for thank you next it was like the one taught me love like one taught me love one taught me blah 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 like that particular right. meme it was like oh this makes me feel like she's speaking something that's relatable to me and that's like makes it more relevant than just like a sheer just someone being a troll because being a troll kind of gets a bit tiresome but if you have a message that actually like resonates with people and it's like actually moves them then that's like actually kind of valuable and actually can actually see like bigger push. And I think that's sort of, that's sort of the issue with like a pump plan where you don't have substance, it is kind of a little valueless. And I, and I know this is like one of the worst cliches, like one of the worst music cliches of is just being like the music has to be good or you have to have a good story to tell. But like, it's kind of true. It really is. Like if you don't have something that people want, it doesn't really, like, you can do, like, if you don't have something that people want, eventually that catches up to you eventually. Like, eventually you'll be giving, con- you'll be putting all this effort into content that no one wants. And if they don't want the content, they'll just eventually pass up for something else. Exactly. Yeah. I completely agree that it's cliche because it's true. And speaking of podcasts, there's this one podcast I listen to regularly called Creative Pep Talk that's aimed more at artists, not just musicians, but also visual artists. But there is one episode um, and it's hosted by an illustrator who goes by Andy J Pizza but he the episode was so smart he was like before you say you want more followers ask yourself what your fans are going to follow you for and I feel like that kind of gets to what you're saying like if you're um, if as an artist you're just saying follow me follow me follow me like follow my music like e- even even if it's good music if fans don't realize like where they're following you to what the journey is like um, or if you're going to a destination like an album, like what that's like, if that's not clear, yeah, then it is totally going to catch up to you and your follower count is just going to fall, you know, just as quickly as it rose. Yeah. Absolutely. So I actually wanted to ask a question, I guess I'll, I'll ask it to you. So obviously mm-hmm. I think we're like talking, we're talking about Ariana Grande and sort of the successful of like the success of her marketing, but I actually do want to like drill deeper for one second to say like, she did stream really well, like... Her album like was was like is like by far the most streamed pop album, and I have like a couple of thoughts as to why. But I sort of want to know why you think it was that this album, Thank You Next in particular, Sweetener also did really really well, but Thank You Next in particular has just been such a big monster in terms of actual raw streaming numbers for the in, in its opening weeks. Yeah, that's um, that's a really good question, and I think a big reason behind why it was streamed so much is also part that to an extent Ariana couldn't really control in the sense that the last year Needless to Stay was kind of like a train wreck personally for her mm-hmm. or like yeah like from um the passing of Mac Miller to her breakup with Pete Davidson um which kind of triggered the whole Thank You Next song and like she even had a song at one point called Pete Davidson which is not um on the Thank You Next album but oh yeah I forgot yeah that. but like but to but I think is related to um, this notion of like a song or an album as like a you can characterize it as like a gossip column almost like that that that's what I think people that's how I think a lot of people treated thank you next it was like yeah. reading reading an article in People magazine except it was authored by Ariana herself it wasn't by just like some random person. But it's like you tune into the song because you want to hear what Ariana has to say about this crazy news that just happened. It's like not just about, oh, this beat is catchy. Obviously, like that's a really big part of it and a big part of pop music generally. But it's it's like treating a song as news in a way. 
And it's like, oh, I, I like have to tune into this. And then, yeah, and I think there is definitely like a catchiness factor um, that, that plays in the more you listen to it. But I think that's why so many people race to the album in the first place because they were leaning into what Ariana had to say. And it, it was kind of like a gossip column that, that just happened to sound really good and that you wanted to like keep revisiting. Uh, I guess, yeah, that, that's the key difference on like an actual like gossip column or like, a piece of news where it just kind of evaporates as soon as it's published. Whereas with this, it's just, it's a really interesting dynamic. Yeah, where like its value only grows over time. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I think, yeah, no, I'm saying that, yeah, no, that's a, that, that, that's a great response. Cause I think it, it's true. It's like, I mean, the big, like, yeah, the big thing is there's a narrative to it. It's a narrative you're, we're all sort of invested in on some level. And that's once you sort of have that, you can kind of do a lot with that. And I think that's something that pop art, again, I'm talking mostly about pop artists because I always feel like pop artists have this particular thing where like you hit over, I think it's like, I, I, I'm sure there's actually like more terminology for it, but it's like, you have your first album, then you have your second album, and then it's sort of the, like they always was like the sophomore slump. But to me, it's always more of the fourth album. It's always the like fourth and fifth album as a pop star that essentially like kind of like solidifies your um your like your standing. I think um Chris Mul- Miss Chris Mul- Chris oh my gosh I can't I cannot pronounce Chris Mulvaney's last name sorry um who's who does like who does a podcast for Slate and also does a column for them that's like about when songs go number one. And he always talked about the imperial period for pop star, where essentially they can do no wrong. And we are definitely in an imperial period for Grande, where essentially whatever she puts out is going to be great and going to be it's going to be regarded as such. But I think what I but what I but what I go back to sort of the streaming numbers, I think that what you said is correct. That like there was a story behind it. We have this this sort of like sad like sort of these sad things that happened in our personal life that we're all sort of vested in, and thus it's sort of like. We want to like see sort of see this story play out, and I guess sort of my one other thought for in terms of why it did so well is I haven't checked actually I haven't checked to do like I was I, I did a while like I used to do all the time but I haven't done as much in the last like little while as um checking the um playlist numbers to see like where it was playlisted and where it, and where it was landing, and I mm. think because I remember when Drake's I remember when Drake's last album came out Scorpion that song like those songs were placed on playlists like. Those were just those were just placed on all the playlists on Spotify and even out. Right, they that was like the a, a, a global <laughs> artist campaign or takeover, yeah. whatever Spotify called it. Yeah, yeah, and I don't, and I haven't checked to see the same happened with Grande, but I think I had a slight trepidation fear that like the Drake album would be sort of the new model, where essentially every album would come out with like, I mean, I guess this has always been this has been the model of pop music the last like 15, 20 years, but it would just be like there would be one song for every possible genre and, and potential playlist. And it would just be this kind of like like trying to flood the market kind of strategy where you're just trying to get mm. Drake on every single playlist possible. And I'm sort of happy that Thank You Next, at least as an album, doesn't really do that. Obviously, there are different styles and different kinds of songs on it. But it isn't like there's a K-pop song or a Latin trap song or a like rap. I mean, that's the mm. kind of like quasi-rap songs. But there isn't like this sort of like desperate need to try 17 different genres, which I really appreciate. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, that is so true. And I was just listening to I was listening through Sweetener earlier today, and I, I kind of had a similar sense. Like, of course, you have your singles um, that like top the charts and that are really good for your pop playlist or party playlist or whatever. Um, and then everything else was also like quite catchy, super hook driven, but it wasn't exactly like it wasn't pandering to something that I guess at this point in her career, Ariana didn't even need anyway and like i don't even think like an artist like drake needed something like the treatment that he ultimately got like he's he's already at 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 such a high point in his career in terms of as you're saying with pop music general like being everywhere and like being played everywhere and just to think about the role of youtube as well so this is very different artist but they come to mind so one of my favorite bands in kind of the funk soul scene is wolfpeck and they're playing Madison Square Garden in September, but they're completely indie. Like the lead singer is basically the band's manager and, they, and they're and they signed to a booking agency. But aside from that, they're extremely independent in their operations. And they have sold out Madison Square Garden without pursuing any kind of playlist strategy at all. Like they don't care about playlists at all. They're also they're like a relatively young 
ban in terms of their members, but their entire strategy was essentially concentrated on YouTube. Ah. In terms of, yeah, and they didn't even post on YouTube that often. Like they would post one music video per track, but they were they're pretty accessible on YouTube. And like, that's how they built their community. And they kind of have an Instagram following, but even there, it's like, they're not really focused there. And they, they just poured all their energy into platforms where you could build community from the ground up. Um, and that's, and it's gotten them to MSG at this point. So yeah, I, I think that's just one example. And Ariana is also just one example, but there is going to be a bigger conversation about whether like playlists, strategy like how how effective playlist strategy can really be at the end of the day or how like pandering to certain playlists on spotify in the actual creation of your album might actually come to hit you back in a negative way yeah so i actually want to say like to like to sort of piggyback off that this is obviously something that i always like think a lot of i thought a lot more about as i made a patreon page and a senior patreon page grow is that once you start having this sort of direct to fan interactions, I think it really does start changing how you conceptualize a lot of this stuff. And I think one mm-hmm. thing for artists, or at least how artists are sort of told that their career should be, is that they get to a point where they don't have to do that stuff. They just make the music as if they're just sort of like a studio musician. And that's all that they sort of do is just make music and don't have to worry about all the other stuff. But the fact that you can worry about all the other stuff is actually, I think, to your advantage like if you as an artist can interact with your fans that's really good and it also makes it so you can have build up relationships and build up connections in ways that are like much more powerful than just people like just pressing play passively on an album or whatever and i think to go back to the i'm gonna keep circling back to the grande because that's the topic of the day so i don't get too off tangent. Mm-hmm. but for grande i think it's interesting that she used twitter a lot because it's sort of like you could imagine a variant of Ariana Grande being a, like a YouTuber more, like doing more stuff on YouTube, doing more YouTube comments. I know she does do some YouTube stuff, but it being really heavily into the YouTube world. But instead, she uses Twitter a lot. And I think one of the reasons I think Twitter is really good for her is because she can let off pithy, weird tweets. Her tweets sort of veer between like random personal, like her tweets veer between like weird Twitter, kind of like the less strange parts of a weird Twitter account and then just like the thoughts of someone that's just in their twenties and then also like banal Mm. celeb thoughts, which are like kind of like a really nice, sweet middle ground of like content or at least one that I really Mm -hmm. appreciate as a couple of those things. Um, And so I think one of the things is that like she chose her medium, I think really well. And I think that's a credit to her and her team, I guess like her team, I guess whoever at the public to like figure out which medium to sort of focus her attention and focus all their efforts because you could definitely sort of see like this kind of backfiring if you only were to concentrate it on YouTube and then you sort of let the other social platforms sort of fall away and you don't really have much connection there. Or the other is that I also think about this for rappers I follow who I always look are always on Instagram stories or on Instagram live. And I'm always kind of like, I know you're interacting with your fans here and I know you're building something here, but like, you don't have that much interaction with those people. You can't repost their stuff. You can't like their stuff. They can't subscribe to your channel. They can't like give you money. It's like a very like non, it's a very like fan first way of doing stuff. And especially when it's live, but it doesn't offer, it doesn't offer as many like ability to like interact with fans. If that makes sort of sense. I think of this similar to like a Patreon page or a Patreon page. People can like stuff they can comment. You can do a lot more interactions with stuff. Where when you're on Instagram stories or Instagram live or even some of the Facebook stuff, it's like you don't have as much, you don't have as many tools in your in, in, in sort of your in your toolbox to sort of go about being an artist and interacting with your fan base. Yeah, those are all such good points, and um, I'm glad that you're also tying it back to Patreon, which yeah, we can like both speak to directly from experience. But yeah, I've I've been thinking a lot about enabling different ways for people to participate in the work that an artist does and and yeah. vice versa. Um, whereas, yeah, it's a good point. Cause I'm thinking about someone like DJ Khaled, who's posting all the time on snap. And he really, I don't know if he pioneered that model, but he really popularized that model of um, giving fans access into your life and sharing advice directly with people who are following you. But that's just one type of interaction. That's a really good point. And it's definitely replicated in the Instagram story environment as well. 
Whereas um, I feel like this is also the same reason why platforms like SoundCloud are also still so popular because they have the same kind of mechanism of like reposting or like retweeting. And it's information just flows a lot more easily, not just vertically, like between the artist and the fan, but also horizontally, like between one fan and and another. And I feel like having both of those set if you're an artist if you're thinking about your strategy and like where are the best places to to engage with people i think having both of those components is super important yeah i mean the thing is if you're an artist you want it so not only you're interacting with your fans but you want your fans to be able to interact with each other because that builds a that is able to build a community there and sometimes that means mm-hmm. that you're i mean hopefully you're you have, your fans are good people and they like they're they like they want to interact with others and they aren't just like loners but that's the sort of the, that's sort of the crux of it is that yeah it's like once you're starting to build this up you're able to create something a little a little bit more there and i think that's something that grande has done really really well with this last album is that it seemingly brought together a lot of her fans and a lot of people who are vaguely interested in her music are now like oh no i'm very like they're now much more much more invested inside of much more invested in the Ariana Grande just sort of overall package and they might have been just even like a year or two ago so that's I think again credit credit to her and something that I think sometimes people will look at things that pop stars do and feel like it's not replicatable to them and it might not apply but I think this is a thing where like if you pay attention to like the things that she does right you there's a lot that can be drawn from. I think a similar artist that does something not too dissimilar to like Grant to Ariana Grande on Twitter is someone like Mitski or who interact with her fans a ton on Twitter. But also mm-hmm. similarly does a thing where she'll sometimes be like, Hey, I'm going away for a little while. I'll be back. And her fans are like, Okay, we'll see you we'll see you later. So if you establish like boundaries and establish like a communication with fans, it doesn't mean you have to be constantly talking to them. Because sometimes you could just be like, hey, I'm going to go away for a week or a month because I have to tour. And they'll be like, okay, that's fine. You'll be back because you're told us you'll be back. And I think that creates something that's, um, I I, I don't know if I would say it's healthier because it is like still like a little, it is like you're, it is like it's still a job of being an artist. But it does make something that's a little bit more communicative and something where you don't feel like you are, you owe your fans everything and they feel entitled to you. It's a little bit more. It's a lot more of a back and forth there. Yes, for sure. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. And I think the last thing that I think the music industry at large, um, and especially artists themselves, the last thing that they would want to see is one where the Ariana Grande model is like a one size fits all model that everyone is trying to like shove down people's throats. Like, oh, everyone yeah. has to be on Twitter all the time. Everyone has to open themselves up completely. Yeah, I I totally agree that if it's not really true to who you are as an artist and like what you want to do and how, yeah, and how much you're comfortable with, then it'll show. And I think people like fans, other audiences, et cetera, will respond accordingly. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things is that when you're an artist, if people, especially if you're an artist that performs live and does, and does that kind of stuff, it's like one of the reasons people want to see you live is because they want to be a part of that community. Uh, they want to be a part of your community and sort of thinking about that outside of that single space and thinking about that and how that can apply in, apply in different contexts, I think is like really great and something that it isn't, I think it's been explored in different ways that, and over, over the years. There's a really good book about this that came out last year called playing to the crowd that actually like investigates some of the, investigates some of these similar topics. Mm-hmm. And, but I think it's something that's still very underexplored and something we're still trying to all sort of learn about every day. Mm, for sure. I have one last question before we move on to the last segment, and it's about the role of music videos generally. And Mm -hmm. I've noticed that there are more and more companies coming up that on like an audience level are much lower than Ariana Grande uh, in terms of like their following. But to list some examples like 88 Rising, which I know like we've talked about in the past, and there's another one called Thrice Cooked Media. And both of those are examples of hybrid artist management companies and essentially video production companies and i think they actually like started off as the former and then generally evolved and then gradually evolved into the latter um, yeah to the point where like it's it's not really appropriate i think to put each of those companies into one category versus the other yeah i'm i'm just wondering to what extent that will increasingly be the model for artists moving forward, especially, and to tie it back to 
Ariana Grande and what she's done over the last half year to a year, the fact that videos have been so crucial to her strategy recently, I think, like, be it the YouTube premiere itself or just, like, being on YouTube generally. Yeah, I'm just wondering to what extent that, to what extent you think that might be a model for a growing number of artists down the line. I always, see, when 88 Rising started moving in that direction, I just thought that made so much sense. I remember having a conversation with some other with other people in the industry who, who were thinking along those lines of just being more towards the video and just more just sort of being a production company, a little more so than just, I guess, artist management or seeing, or just sort of like boxing themselves into one of those lanes. Yeah, the idea of being a production company in that sort of way to me makes total sense because that's essentially what we've been talking about for the last half hour is that what Ariana Grande and all these artists are doing is they're doing production of themselves in different contexts and different formats. And for music videos, I think music videos are great because music videos, one, promote the song, promote the music, give an aesthetic to the, give an, like provide an aesthetic to an artist, promote the music. And also it provides some of the best memeable content for artists. Like one of the best ways to sort of get, for the one of the ways that artists have been able to like make themselves known this entire decade is through music videos and really through like memeable music videos. So like, I think the value of the music video has only increased and thus companies that are starting to think of themselves in that mold do make a lot of sense. Though I would, I will guess I would exercise a little bit of caution for every, anyone listening that just wants to hop into that is that video production is not easy and takes yeah. a lot of effort mm-hmm. and a lot of time. And especially if you're like trying to do it for multiple artists, that's not, that's not like a, it's not quite the same, which is like having like, you're the, you're, you're the manager and you're going to like handle booking or handle that kind of stuff. Like, I mean, which is also itself its own its own hard job, but like video production and doing something on the scales of having multiple artists and trying to do different genres and doing all this kind of stuff, that's a that's a big undertaking. That's an undertaking I don't you, I wouldn't want to underestimate and think that everyone would be able to do. For sure, yeah, and especially if you're looking to expand across multiple different platforms in the stories you're trying to tell. I'm just thinking of how this isn't a direct comparison, but like news companies like to be like they have a snap person and they have uh, like an Instagram person and like there are these entire teams built for people who have to deal with this on a daily basis and I feel like to do that on Ariana Grande level you also need that team and yeah it's definitely easier said than done it's not you would probably not be making music at all if that's what you're doing all day <laughs> yeah that's my guess yeah yeah you will probably have someone out I mean that's sort of I mean I guess that's one of the ways to think about it is like if you're if you want to be in music but you don't you don't think that you're good at you don't think you're good at music maybe that's your role is to be the video is to be like the video producer and that's but you work at a company that works with the artists or more directly instead of being sort of siphoned off away to other things like instead of sort of being like a one-off person that just does one-off projects you're like oh no i'm part of this sort of bigger collective but i guess it's sort of the thing that mm-hmm. like um yeah. at the top of the decade when odd future came about and there was like it felt like every rap group was a collective like and everyone did 500 things it was i guess it's sort of mm-hmm. a little bit like that model but i guess a little bit maybe a little more a little bit more um a little bit more suited up and a little bit more um tangible because i felt like that way of presenting themselves was always a little bit of um I thought that was a little bit of teenagers kind of pulling the wool over our eyes. I'm like, well, I know some of you guys are doing some of the work, but I don't know if everyone is doing all the titles that they actually say they're doing. Yeah, that's a really good point, though, of like uh, someone with more like video oriented skills really being like a team member for an artist as opposed to someone who like, yeah, like you contract for one video. Yeah. Yeah, it's like you're part of the you're part of the crew instead of just sort of being like someone that's like brought in just to like do one 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 thing and then are away again. Right, exactly. Great. Yeah, so I'm sure we could go on about this for a really, really long time. But just for the sake of time, I wanted to transition to the closing segment. And so this is the first episode we're doing this. But for every future episode of this podcast, I thought it would be great for the guest at the very end and myself as well to offer a piece of recent news in the music industry or about a certain artist that we think is over and or underrated and explain why we think that's the case. And I'll let you go first. I know you have one piece of news that you think might be overrated. Yeah. So the the news I wanted to to tip off with this week was actually, to be fair, a little outside of the realm of music, but I still think it's something worth chatting, chatting about for a second, which is that recently there have just been increasingly like lawsuits happening with, around the game Fortnite and just sort of essentially 
lawsuits around the concept of just dances in writ large and like is it possible to trademark and like trademark a dance and all this other kind of stuff and essentially one of the reasons why it's sort of in music news is one that Fortnite was the game that i mean i honestly will say i have no way to prove this but i still feel like the thing that inspired one of the things that inspired the Ariana Grande video premiere was when Drake hopped on Fortnite last year of Ninja at the top of the year. And that to me mm. just like still loomed as one of the bigger moments of music all of 2018. And that was obviously on Fortnite. And so the Fortnite dance controversy, which is essentially for people that don't know, is that over the last, I guess, year, Fortnite, which is a video game made by Epic Games, which is partially owned by Tenzin, just in case, just to make another music connection, partly owned by Tenzin, has been has put dances in their games and people who were the original creator of these dances have started to raise an ire being like hey we have we aren't being compensated for these dances and it sort of created this interesting question of like can you copyright a dance and like what exactly is copyrightable about like a single dance move because a whole like a whole coordinated dance routine yes but like individual moves traditionally have not been under under such sort of like regulation so it's just sort of been like an interesting story for me to follow i would say that it's like it's sort of a weird mix of underrated in the sense that it's under and overrated in a little way i think it's probably overrated for the immediate impact of whatever this will happen in Fortnite. i feel like it'll they'll like probably resolve this out in the way that gets it so they can pay the least amount of money to ever have to pay the money to just be frank but i think it's underrated and just sort of the world of us starting to think through some of these different issues of copyright and just sort of thinking of like, what exactly is it that people have ownership of? Like, I think mm. that's something that I feel, I, I, I feel like I always say this. I feel like the 2020s are going to see and as we're heading into the, a new decade, is seeing a lot more revival of some of these older internet concerns of like, Hey, this is on the internet. Hey, or like you see stories about how there's sort of an increase in piracy as more stuff goes for pay and i feel like some of these old like old issues of of sort of copyright and things that have been classic classic stable of internet discussion are going to start seeing themselves revive a bit yeah definitely and this whole story reminds me of another very similar incident from the film world and it was with the actor jet lee who i think was in one of the installments of the matrix series but he revealed during a panel that he refused to be cast in other installments of the matrix in part because he would no longer have ownership over his martial arts moves and i think what he meant in that situation is it's not about the moves themselves but i think more about um i think in in legal terms it's referred to as likeness i think hypothetically for instance in like a vr game related to the matrix they could make like an avatar of someone who looks like Jet Li who like has all of those moves and they would have full ownership over that. And obviously that isn't something that he he would want. But I think in that case, it's tied to his likeness, like to, it's recognizable as him and he will not have ownership over that. So I think that's why he pushed back. But yeah, like there's, there's no, I feel like there's like very little legal precedent for, yeah, like for these types of issues where you're talking about like avatars and dances and games, especially one like Fortnite, which is like so up to speed with pop culture and like all of its fleeting elements, be it like, yeah, like the latest dance challenge or like the latest meme, et cetera. Like legally, how do you prepare for that? It's like definitely an open question. It's a, if I had a different, you know what? If someone had told me this when I was younger, that this could have been a thing I could have studied at law, maybe I'd be a lawyer. Cause this would have been, <laughs> if I had known this one, if I had known it like at 15, that like the memes that I'm seeing online are going to be, have legal precedent or something i'd be like oh maybe i should go to law school because that's what have been cool to <laughs> yeah no lawyers will be more more important in this space i think and kind of related so kind of related to the whole Fortnite dance copywriting controversy the piece of news that i had in mind that is also over and underrated in a way but i saw recently on billboard that the late amy winehouse's hologram tour is being put on hold <laughs> And <laughs> they're, they did not, understandably did not mention specific reasons, but I think the company said in a statement, they encountered some unique challenges and sensitivities is like how, how they put it. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. And I think the, the whole like hologram tour space right now 
is overrated to me in the sense that it's not interactive at all. So I, I saw an early demo of the Roy Orbison hologram, which was going on tour by the same production company based hologram that is working on Amy Winehouse's tour. And it was it was interesting and there was a bit of an like uncanny valley element to it and that it was it was pretty high quality and they definitely like recreated his likeness with the approval of his estate, obviously, pretty convincingly, but there was like they didn't respond to applause if the audience applauded uh. um, or they like I guess it's it's like all pre-programmed. So it's not like fully interactive like like a game like Fortnite would be. Yeah. It's just like a state it's just like a, a movie at like at this point that happens to be uh like a laser projection. So it's it's like it's a much more cinematic approach in that sense. So yeah, like that to me is a little overrated, but what's underrated, there there are a lot of different things. Well, one element that's underrated is obviously like the legal side of things, how it's often really difficult to put these together. And I think Frank Zappa was trying to do a hologram tour like his estate and um they ran into a lot of legal issues in terms of like getting approval from from the family to do that tour so yeah what's underrated are the legal implications but then also from a commercial standpoint i'm very intrigued by this concept of an artist like extending their immortality or like getting as close to immortal as possible. And I don't know if that's like too lofty of a concept, <laughs> but <laughs> it's because I guess traditionally with the Michael Jackson estate, for instance, like the live concert space is essentially closed off to them now. Yeah. I guess um, unless they like, yeah, I don't know if they would like sponsor a, a cover tour at all or like benefit from that really. But like that as a revenue stream is now, yeah, like they, they don't really have access to that anymore. Whereas these, I think one of the main benefits of hologram tours is extending that in perpetuity, I guess, as long as you have new and interesting recordings, like archival materials and catalog to draw from. That's just really intriguing to me. And yeah, like, I don't, I don't know if that's something that, like, yeah, I don't know if I'm completely comfortable with that concept. Like it's, yes, it's amazing if artists can like live for longer or if, if any human being can live yeah. for longer for that matter i think a lot of people would want that but yeah i just I, i'm just not used to it yet i guess yeah that's what it boils down to yeah I have, a, I have a lot of thoughts on that but i'll I'll, I'll end on a positive note because i feel like often my newsletter gets very dour and if anyone just is listening <laughs> to this and follows me on twitter or reads my newsletter they're like oh why you, you seem very down and i'm like well that's just my disposition a lot but i actually do think one thing i actually find interesting about hologram tours and I think it's a, it is a little weird and it definitely hits an uncanny valley, but I think it actually reaffirms one of the things about music writ large, that music is a thing that's meant to be shared amongst pe- all people. And that's sort of like, and just sort of brings together different communities and sort of, it's sort of like a communal experience. And if the mm-hmm. hologram tour is able to sort of reignite that kind of sense of community in a way, then I find that kind of cool. It's a little weird and might be a little strange and maybe a little disconcerting for some people. But I think there is something kind of cool if you were to see a hologram tour of an artist that at one point you really connected with. And this is the way for you to reconnect back with those people. I think that there's something that is like really, there's something nice there. I'm not sure <laughs> how that'll actually, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't seen, I haven't been to any hologram tours and I find the concept of them a little, I still a little disconcerting, but I do think there is probably some examples in other times where it could actually be really, really nice and really exciting in ways. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And I, when I was researching the Roy Orbison hologram piece, like if you go to the Facebook page for the official tour or like for one of the event pages, there are people commenting of all ages like yeah like a lot of whom did not get to see Roy Orbison live at all but discovered his music later down the line and then got to experience it in this setting and um, with that tour specifically there was like a live local symphony orchestra a lot of which was just assembled yeah a lot of which was assembled locally like just for the event and so that definitely adds a layer that you wouldn't be able to get just by uh, streaming a record or playing one of his records so yeah, I, I appreciate that that positive look. Yeah, I think there's something there's something very there could be something really cool about 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 that kind of experience. But I think it's something that like obviously the technology is like still coming along. There's still a lot of logistics and legal things that you're pointing out. But I do think there is something like genuinely interesting slash could be very like warming about that those kind of experiences. Yeah, for sure. Great. 
Well, uh, to close out, we've so we've been talking a ton about your newsletter. We've been talking about Twitter. And if you could just quickly share, if there's anything you do want to share, like where can people read your work? Where can people follow you and, and learn more about what you're up to? Absolutely, absolutely. So right now, my Twitter account is right now private. That doesn't mean you cannot follow it, um, but it is currently private for just personal reasons. But my Twitter is currently um, underscore David Turner underscore. So if you want to follow that, click that like. I mean, click that follow button, and I'll pro- and I'll most certainly approve you to join into my in, into my universe. The other place where you can <laughs> find my work is at my newsletter, Penny Fractions. So if you just go into Google and type in Penny Fractions, you'll find it. It'll be the first couple of Google results. Um, and the last thing I want to promote is my Patreon page, which is on Patreon slash Penny Fractions, which is right now mostly if you subscribe to the top tier, which is $6, you'll get additional posts from me that is sort of me reacting to sort of general news of music news of the day. Slash you'll get a little, hopefully... By the time this comes out, hopefully I'll have my first actual book review going going up on there. I want to start doing more of those. I'm also going to be changing up the tiers a little bit because I actually do want to start in, integrating a little bit more fan interaction and letting people sort of know like, hey, here's what I'm going to be writing about for the next month or so. So people can have a sense of like what I'll be following, what, I, what, what I'm interested in right now, and we can have more dialogue about that. So that's sort of – those are the three best ways to, to, to get in contact with me. Um, I have a TikTok page, but I need to get more into that. So I'm not going to give that out. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> That's TikTok is a platform that like I have it on my phone and I open it occasionally, but I'm definitely still trying to understand we, yeah. how to really navigate it. Yeah. yeah. I feel like we'll be spending a lot of 2019 trying to understand TikTok more. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much again. This was super interesting. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to hear the rest of these as they keep coming out. Awesome.